The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, you happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really works. And one way the world really works is that our financial fortunes depend on other people, and how other people relate to us depends on their impression of us that they get. And so, in order to change the way that others see you, you first have to learn to see yourself as others see you. I'm going to introduce you to three very important people in your life. One of them is your most important employee. And when you don't recognize your most important employee, you don't do the things necessary to help that employee deliver the very best of which they're capable. The second is, well, you know, it's, it's unfortunate and it's unhappy, but you're better off knowing about this person than not knowing. And the second person I want to introduce you to is the person most responsible, the person more to blame than anybody else for all your failures and mistakes. You're probably getting a clue um, where we're going here. Third person I want to introduce you to is the person you are most responsible for improving physically, spiritually, educationally, and in terms of acquisition of skills. These are three people you really need to know your most valuable and important employee, the person most to blame for your mistakes and problems, and finally, the person whom you carry a sacred responsibility to improve physically and spiritually and educationally and skill-wise. The names of these people, well, here's the first interesting thing. They all carry the same name. Isn't that a coincidence? And furthermore, if you want to know the name of these three people, all you have to do is open your wallet, take out your driving license, and look at the name printed on your driving license. And that person is the person who is your most important employee. It's also the person more to blame than anyone else on the planet for your faults and for your problems. And also, it is the person that you carry the highest level of responsibility for improving physically, spiritually, educationally, and in terms of skills. You know, I once was uh, lecturing 
at a uh, financial seminar put on by a church, and somebody came up to me afterwards and uh, and said, I have a question on what you started off with, um, that I am the person most responsible, the person more to blame than anyone else for my mistakes. She says, well, I'll have you know that I was raised by abusive parents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, I am not a very new agey kind of person, and I, I'm not a very touchy-feely kind of person, which I guess in this day and age is probably good. But um, I do feel that, you know, we have limited time for interaction, and that time is wasted if I do what? That's right, massage you with warm butter. Uh, the time is put to far greater use, if I confine myself to the truth. And, uh, and so I said to her, look, uh, the most uh, compelling temptation is to blame our parents for our faults. And uh, without knowing anything at all about your childhood, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but most people in this room could match you blow for blow. What you claim your parents failed to do or what they did do, pretty much everyone in this room can do the same thing. The question is, can you get beyond that? Can you go past it? And you see, there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. You can't go back and get a do-over, right? Because you're an adult now. And what you're saying happened when you were two years old and four years old and six years old. And so this is a completely pointless discussion. I'm not even going to go into the question of how damaging and dangerous the word abuse has become because it's not defined. Uh, again, I believe that everybody in the audience could come up with an example of how their parents abused them because the word can mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. And so I would recommend you stop using that word extirpate it from your vocabulary because it means nothing and the way you're tending to use it tends to turn you in your own mind into a victim and that is very dangerous indeed and so we're going to uh, uh, focus on the idea that yes you are the one who is responsible everything that you consider to be a problem today uh, in your life, it's not due to what your parents did. It really isn't. It's due to mistakes that you have made in the past. It's due to bad decisions you made in the past. And uh, I, I'm really very willing to, to play that game with you, I said to her. If you like, you can even tell me. You know, what are you most angry at your parents for? And I guarantee you that with five minutes conversation, you will come to see that it's not your parents. It's you. You did something stupid or bad or, or destructive. And that and that might have been done 20 years ago. We, we're going to have to talk and find out. But you really put yourself on the road to success when you acknowledge the mistakes one has made in the past. I'm not saying dwell on them. I'm not saying wallow in them. I'm not even saying waste a lot of time looking backwards. 
But as long as you accept that the mistakes you were made were yours and that the reason for your current predicament, whatever it is, is you, well, you have just empowered yourself to change going forward from now onwards, to for forward from now to tomorrow. Get moving today. But as long as you persist in retaining, even deep in your subconscious, this uh, destructive and uh, and 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 uh, insidious idea that oh yes it's these people it's my parents it's my relatives it's all these people who abused me and that's why I'm the way I am today no it really isn't uh, let's just acknowledge that you've made mistakes and let's move forward and in doing that we have to understand some things about ourselves. Uh, so let's move into that, and uh, let's start off with the most uh, basic distinction between us as human beings. Uh, we are either male or female. Now, I'm not going to waste a lot of time acknowledging that, yes, I know that this is a viewpoint that is becoming increasingly demonized and that uh, I, in making that statement, would be viewed at the very least as being offensive, which I constantly have to point out to people. I just had it again this morning, by the way. Uh, somebody said to me that uh, your last podcast, the one that says there are no poor people in America, uh, I found it very offensive, and so I smiled, you know, and I said, look, uh, the fact that you found it offensive does not automatically indict the teaching or me. Maybe you're just too thin-skinned. We don't know. That, you know, the fact that you're offensive is very subjective. It means nothing. And so if you think I'm going to prostrate myself on the floor in self, in orgies of self-flagellation, because you were offended at what I said. Not going to happen. But if you like, you can tell me exactly what I said that was a distortion or a lie or a misleading statement in any way. And, uh, and if indeed I did do that, then of course I will apologize and correct it. But if what I'm saying bothers you, have you never heard the expression, the truth often hurts? Of course it does. And so, uh, yes, the fact that there are many people who say that uh, there is no longer, we, we've grown beyond, studies have shown, experts have revealed, the science now proves that there is no such thing as male or female, but it is a, uh, a range and a spectrum, then I will explain to you that this is why over the last 50 years, there's been a tragic but inexorable journey in America towards credentialism, which means that uh, no longer are ordinary people uh, permitted to analyze a statement for its veracity. No, no. Now, if the statement is made by an authority, by an expert, then you have to accept it. That's all there is to it. And uh, this has happened more and more. I'm sure if you notice it, if you are on the alert for this, 
you will see repeated instances of this happening. So please be aware that uh, that anybody who denounces that statement that our most basic and fundamental distinction is the distinction between male and female, anybody who denounces that is somebody who's not going to want to discuss biology, but it's somebody who's going to essentially take refuge in credentialism or expertitis, uh, or for that matter, the uh, idolatry of science. The notion that, uh, oh, science has already decided on that. No, there's not a whole lot of contemporary debate about which science is, in fact, decided. Uh, that's simply not how science actually works. The whole reason that the entire scientific enterprise has progressed beyond where we were in 1000 AD is precisely because we don't accept anything as settled. Anything may be questioned, and that would be true for, for anybody whose commitment to science is uh, authentic. So, with that having been said, uh, yes, we are men and women. And, uh, and, and just part of the reality of masculinity uh, is an, if you like, a sort of aggressive, jutting masculinity that, that stands out. It is visible. And uh, it's just a part of who men are. Uh, women, females tend to be more modest. What I mean by more modest, well, uh, I can assure you there is no man's clothing catalog in which you will ever find the word modesty. But by contrast, if you look at women's clothing catalogs, uh, you'll see things like um, uh, available with modesty panel. Or the ad will say, lined for modesty. That word modesty only applies to women. It doesn't apply to men. Not surprisingly, the way the good Lord created us is with men's sexual organs visible and, if you like, aggressively visible. And uh, women's sexual organs are completely concealed, modestly, if you, if you like. So you see, there is this uh, startling parallel between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, we identify certain aspects of the spiritual nature of the female, of the woman, and uh, a certain aspect of the spiritual nature of a man, the ambition, the aggressiveness, etc. And then we say, oh, hello, uh, there's a parallel between the spiritual and the physical. The body reflects the spiritual reality of its owner in that sense. Now, is this just a strange coincidence that I stumbled across, or is it a reliable pattern? And the answer is that it is actually a very wonderfully reliable pattern and one that I'm going to point out in one or two other mind-numbing examples. But uh, before I do that, I want to alert you to a brand new product. This is an exciting product. 
uh, and I'll tell you why. Because we've got, and you know I always ask you if, if you're listening from anywhere just a little unusual, and by the way, a little unusual can be uh, uh, South Dakota, uh, Montana, uh, New Mexico, you know, the, the, the lesser populated states. I always ask people who are listening in unusual, please tell me, um, you know, let me know where you are listening from. I love knowing that. And uh, particularly, we have growing numbers of listeners of this show out of the country. Um, Africa is a region of, of huge growth for, for listeners, and uh, so is Asia. South America, we've got increasing numbers of listeners in South America. Now, uh, we have certain products that are difficult for us, if not impossible, to ship outside uh, the um, North American uh, postal region. And so... Uh, the, the product I'm talking about specifically is a television show that Susan and I host. It's called Ancient Jewish Wisdom, and it's a half-an-hour show wherein we tend to uh, focus on real-life solutions uh, to, 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 to problems. One of the things we, we like uh, thinking of, the sort of slogan we have in our minds, is uh, ancient solutions for modern problems. In other words, ancient Jewish wisdom and how this can enhance the real-life aspects of, of your modern-day life today. And so um, one of the things that... Um, I'll just give you an example of something that uh, that is in one of our ancient Jewish wisdom television shows. And people like it because they're not scripted in the sense that you see a very natural interplay between uh, Susan and myself. And uh, if you think that she always agrees with me, then... <laughs> <laughs> you definitely need to see a couple of these television shows. But uh, let me give you an example. Um, why does America support Israel? So much so that the fact that the Democratic Party in America is becoming an anti-Israel party uh, is, is, is earth-shaking. Uh, the overwhelming majority of self-identified American Jews, unfortunately, have always associated with the Democratic Party. And so today, they are undergoing a, uh, a true a seismic shock. They are being shaken to their very core because the party that their parents subscribed to and their, their grandparents, I mean, this, this goes back to the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and World War II, and uh, the party, they are, all of a sudden, the Democratic Party, to which they have been utterly dedicated, almost as a, a badge of virtue, because everyone knows, right, good people, people who care, compassionate people affiliate with the Democratic Party, whereas conservatives, oh, they tend to be greedy and selfish and racist and, oh, you know, all the, the usual stuff. Um but why does America support Israel, and why does it, why is it that the Democratic Party is becoming very anti-Israel? Well, um, it's, it's very simple. America supports Israel 
only because there are tens of millions of Bible-believing Christians who are devoted and dedicated to the verse in chapter 12 of Genesis where God says, those that curse you I will curse, and those that uh, and I will bless those that bless you. And uh, and Bible believing people know that uh, that that the relationship with with Israel is a real one, and it it is a one that comes with real life consequences. So a lot of people, particularly again in the Jewish community, no Israel is supported by America because of strategic parallels. Israel is the only democratic ally. Oh, and Israel is like a an aircraft carrier in the Middle East. It's America's ally. Look, all that is complete, unadulterated bilge water. If that were true, then the strongest nexus of Israel's support in the United States would be the State Department, the Pentagon, uh, the White House under any president. But uh, it goes without saying that those uh, pinnacles of power are blissfully unaware of any deep need for connection with Israel. If anything, the State Department for sure leans towards the Muslim world. And, uh, and so it remains that were it not for tens of millions of Bible-believing philo-Semitic Christians who love Israel and who vote, I'm quite certain that America's attitude towards Israel would be very little different from that of France or Sweden or Norway or, for that matter, the United Kingdom unless Boris Johnson is soon the Prime Minister, which I hope will take place. Um, one of the reasons for this is because Jews and Christians, and you can see I'm sort of thinking in terms of the American alliance of Jews and Christians, which I have the privilege of leading, uh, Jews and Christians um, recognize that the Bible uses the phrase of going up to Israel and going down from Israel. In other words, it's the weirdest thing, but it's a deep recognition that Israel is on a higher spiritual plane. It doesn't mean that the people living in Israel are, are more virtuous than anyone else. No, but that the land itself, its very air, contains certain a certain spiritual attribute. And, um, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, that Israel's national airline, uh, El Al. In Hebrew, those words, El Al, means to up. <laughs> going up. And when people um, move, immigrate to Israel, they always speak about doing an ascent. I'm, I'm going to be making an ascent. And where this comes from is um, consistently in the Bible. Uh, think of Genesis, the beginning of chapter 13. And Abraham went up from Egypt back to Israel. You see, because Egypt and everywhere is on a lower spiritual level. Therefore, if Abraham is going to Israel from Egypt, he's going upwards. Um, how about, uh, there's another nice one in Genesis chapter 26, verse 2. And God appeared to Isaac and said to him, do not go down to Egypt. Why not just don't go to Egypt? Because it's up and down. Uh, Genesis chapter 42. And Jacob said to his sons, 
uh, go down there to Egypt and buy us food from there. But interestingly enough, whenever uh, people in the Bible, whenever Israelites, the children of Israel in the Bible, are talking to somebody else who's not, uh, especially if it's sort of somebody who might not appreciate the notion that their country is viewed as being on a lower plane, the nomenclature changes to just come and go, not up and down. So you'll see that when Abraham is talking to his um, non-Israelite servant Eliezer, he says, so to my land and birthplace you shall go. It doesn't say go down. Uh, when jo- Joseph's brothers are talking to him in Egypt, not knowing who he is, not knowing that he's their brother, Genesis chapter 42, verse 10, they say, your servants came here to buy food. They don't say came down here. And there's a striking exclusion to the sensitivity. Um, Joseph, you'll remember, insisted that he was going to detain Benjamin as a thief. And so Joseph says to his brothers, and as I'm going to keep Benjamin here, this is Genesis chapter 44, verse 17. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. And um, earlier on, before Joseph was ready to disclose his identity, in chapter 42, verse 20, he said, now go and bring your younger brother to me. So most of the times that uh, Joseph speaks to his brothers, he avoids using the up-down terminology when talking about traveling to or from Israel. But the, the one striking exception, as I told you, is uh, Genesis forty four seventeen, because that's where he's getting ready to reveal himself. And so uh, he says, and as for you, go up in peace back to your father in, in Canaan. And, uh, and so there we see that he gives them a, a sort of little subconscious hint that he is actually part of Abraham's family. And, and that's why Judah then begins his poignant 17-verse uh, speech, um, which contains no fewer than seven mentions of going up and going down, referring to the journeys between Egypt and Israel. That's uh, the second half of chapter 44 in Genesis. Um, and so now this being the very first time that the brothers have used this up-down language in his presence, it signals to Joseph that they now suspect that he himself must be somehow a descendant of Abraham. And that's when Joseph breaks down and formally identifies himself. So uh, Bible-believing Jews and Christians share this vision and this sense of destiny, which they alone see of Israel as sort of being up there. And, uh, And Israelis are now so much more open to the idea than American Jews are, to the idea that Jews and Christians are allies in the struggle to save civilization. And that's really what the American Alliance of Jews and Christians is all about. And it is precisely... Um, an example of what I've just told you is an example of the kind of television show we've done. Now, up till now, these television shows, and at the moment, we have four um, video DVDs. So up till now, you could buy uh, any one of four different programs, four four different DVDs, each of, of which 
contained four shows. And so if you bought one DVD, you would have three, excuse me, you would be able to watch four of these TV shows as many times as you want to. And you would find that they would provide really valuable group viewing for somebody you're close to, somebody you want to become close to uh, romantically or uh, even business-wise, and also in terms of children and family. Uh, the only problem is that uh, you needed to wait and have this thing delivered to you in the mail, the DVD, the disc, or uh, in some countries we weren't even able to send it at all. And so now, now, you know what? Now we actually, for the first time, literally, this is, this is you're hearing about this for the first time. These uh, television shows are now available to you, uh, downloadable. They're MP4 files, for those of you interested in the technical format. Uh, you can download them in standard definition. You can download them in HD, high-definition versions. And um, you can just do that at the website, at rabbidaniellappin.com. You go to the store, look for the television, the, the DVDs, and you can now download them, which is very, very cool. Because this way, it can be on your phone, it can be on your pad, it can be on your laptop. Uh, you can have it wherever you like, and uh, you can show it to people and share it with people and uh, see it yourself. It really does make for um, valuable conversation. I can't tell you how many letters we've received from people who've moved onto a routine of a regular basis. For some people, it's once a week. For some people, it's once a month. But people have moved on to a regular basis of family watching. And we are very, very careful to make certain that every one of these TV shows fits that parameter, that it is something that a group of people can watch and then engage in substantive and beneficial conversation. So, so there it is. It is the, um, the ancient Jewish wisdom television show. There are three of them. There are three uh, collections available. Each collection contains four shows, which is to say two hours of viewing time. So please take a look at that at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com and, um, and enjoy it, as I'm pretty sure you will. Do let me know. While you're at it, tell me where about on this great planet of ours, tell me where about you are, so as I can add more pins to my world map, and uh, I, I enjoy that. Look, I just enjoy it. I, I do. Um, okay, so what we got to do is uh, is proceed back now, if you don't mind, and continue with the subject at hand, getting to know yourself. Okay, so you remember uh, I showed you the uh, parallelism between the spiritual nature of men and women and the physical nature of our bodies. Um, I'll give you another example. Uh, we've got eyes and ears. These are two input devices. Where do you get more reliable information? Through pictures or through words? Through eyes or through ears? By the way, just to clarify, when you read a book, yes, I know you're using your eyes, of course, but uh, the reality is that it goes straight to the word processing part of the brain because the word is not a picture. It's an abstract representation, and it needs to be processed in the ear section, in the ear department. 
Uh, where do you get more reliable information? Well, think about it. Um, do you have are you, do you have clutter around your house? Do you have stuff you bought that you don't actually need, and that if you're brutally honest, you actually never need it? Right. Well, if you're like me, then I'm afraid the sad answer to that and the truthful answer to that is yes. Well, my next question is, did you buy it because of your eyes or because of your ears? And almost without exception, I can assure you that when you buy things you don't really need, it's because of your eyes much more than your ears. You saw it and you said, I want one like that. You saw pictures of it um, more strongly. Do you know any male who has made a really bad decision with respect to a woman? Okay, yeah, silly question, right? Who doesn't? Honestly, I mean, is there any one of us who doesn't know a boy who made a really bad decision about a girl, a man, woman? No, we all know people like that. Simple question. Did they make that mistake because of their eyes or because of their ears? In other words, did they see her and long for her? I, I would have said lust for her, but that's an old-fashioned word that makes me sound like a 19th century preacher. So I'll just say long for her, desired her. Uh, they saw her, obviously. Uh, when people use their ears in this respect, if I had my way, nobody would go out with a person of the opposite gender until they've spoken on the phone for a total of four hours. Um, because that way, there'd be a lot more happy marriages, right? In other words, if you take the impact of the eye out of the picture, it would actually work very well. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest here and I'll confess well, I'm always honest, that's a figure of speech, but I'll be honest here and confess that um, not many people follow my advice that you should talk on the phone for a total of four hours before you actually meet somebody. Um, these days, people are looking at pictures on, on social media, and they're, in other words, when you introduce a man and a woman to, you know, you give, you say to the girl, can I give him your phone number? She says, yeah. You say to the guy, I want you to call this girl. She's expecting your number. He already is spending hours on the internet trying to get an idea of what she looks like before he even calls her. But if he, uh, if you would follow wise guidance he talked to her for a few hours on the phone before he even actually meets her because you want to minimize the effect of the eyes as the bible says it um, so that you should not go astray after your eyes and after your heart right because the eyes are tied to the emotion um, news you know, what the news media do is they show images that have an emotional impact on us. And after that, uh, all idea of uh, balance is gone. Any dispassionate analysis is now impossible. Because when you've shown me an, a, a picture that grabs my emotions, it's finished. I can't think clearly anymore. Neither can anybody. It's perfectly natural. It's perfectly normal. And, and they do that all the time. People, uh, the media does that. And when we talk about uh, fake media and the way the media has lost our confidence in the United States of America, it's not only the lies. It's also this excessive use uh, of emotionalism in order to make an argument rather than simply uh, present the news. And so... 
um, there we've got eyes and ears. Now, let's ask a simple question, and that is, uh, in what way do our physical organs, eyes and ears, reflect the spiritual reality, which is that we can be more dispassionate and analytical with information that comes through our ears, whereas information that comes through our eyes is more likely to be distorted. Where do we get that from physically? Well, let me tell you. Um, we have a balance mechanism, and the word balance is used not only physically but spiritually, right? Uh, I want a balanced perspective. That's using the word spiritually. I'm, I don't want to lose my balance. That's physical. Where do we put the balance mechanism? Well, from a purely um, uh, evolutionary perspective, I would have said the place for the balance sensors would be in one's shoulders. That would be, firstly, you've got spatial separation for maximum, um, uh, for maximum precision. And um, uh, you've also got them in shoulders, which don't move as much as our hands. So hands, for example, would be a really bad place for them because as you wave your arms around, uh, your brain would think you're, you're, you're falling over or you're moving violently. And, and the only way not to get uh, nauseous is for your brain to do corrections, which is like the equivalent of millions of lines of software code. Um, a really bad place is your head also. It's like hands. Your head moves constantly. And so you want to put balance mechanism, put them in the shoulders, near the spinal column, good spatial separation, and in a part of the body that if these sensors actually say I'm falling over, I probably am. But because the sensors are in my head, and you all know by now that the balance sensors are in our inner ears, every time I tilt my head, as I might when asking a question, uh, the message the brain gets is I'm falling over. And the only reason I don't stagger to the side to recover my balance, which wasn't lost in the first place, is because my brain has the equivalent of millions of lines of software code um, to enter the input of from my neck about the tilt. And no, you're not really falling over. So why did God put our balance mechanisms in the ear? I'll tell you why. Because he wanted us to understand that what we hear through our ears, the data we obtain through our ears generally turns out to be more reliable, more balanced than through our eyes, whereas the information that comes through our eyes, well, here's a good one. Uh, tell me about the image that your lens uh, costs on your retina. The image of what you see, the world around you, you know something? It's upside down, and the brain has to put it right way up. Why didn't the marvel of evolution simply create a compound lens that would put an image on the back of our eyes that's right way up, that matches the world we see? Right? Could have, could have done it. But no, we have to process it to put it right. The clue is don't trust what comes through your eyes. Much better to trust what comes through your ears. And, um, and I think that's, that's really... Just a, a really another useful example of how our physical bodies reflect the spiritual reality. And so um, uh, why is this important, particularly in terms of our financial destiny? Um, well, because generating revenue really means becoming cognizant 
of spiritual realities as much as physical realities. And I also need to clarify for you that when I use the word spiritual, please don't think that uh, it is merely a synonym for holy or godly or virtuous or pious or saintly. No! Spiritual doesn't mean that at all. Spiritual means anything that cannot be measured in a laboratory. It has no physical measurement. And so... uh, um, you have good spiritual and bad spiritual, right? There's, there's spiritual things that are very negative. There are also spiritual things that are, are very positive. That's all spiritual means, things that cannot be measured in a lab. And what we are looking at now, here's the, the fascinating idea, which is that our most important money-making attributes are spiritual and not physical, That is, you know, unless you happen to be a swimsuit model. But anyone who is earning their living, other than because they have beautiful bodies, is using spiritual characteristics, not physical characteristics. What are physical characteristics? Color of our skin, whether we have a lot of hair in our heads or none at all. Stop laughing. Whether we are male or female, whether we are short or tall, whether we uh, tend towards uh, large body size or small body size, all these are physical characteristics. What are spiritual characteristics? Honesty, integrity, integrity resourcefulness, optimism, uh, the ability to get beaten down and pick yourself up and keep yourself in the game. These are really, really important. And, and here's the, the valuable thing to know. There is no test available for uh, administering to new people you're hiring in your company. Now, they have various personality-type tests, which are very interesting. But in terms of testing, right, think about what do you want when you're hiring someone, you know, whether you are yet at a place where you're hiring or whether you've done hiring, uh, you know that you are looking for honesty and integrity and resourcefulness and diligence and stick-to-itness. Everything you're looking for is spiritual, and there's not a single test available that will tell you whether the person you are hiring has those things or not. It's very difficult. Uh, How do you measure somebody's honesty or integrity in real terms, right? I mean, all you can do is in real life, you have to present them with uh, temptation and see how they react. But, you know, that's playing games with people that can end up being very bad, And so, you know, it's like um, uh, wives, you know, how do you know you can trust your husband? Uh, Well, I've answered that question at other times. And if the wife says, I just know he would, he's trustworthy. He would never betray our marriage. He wouldn't do it. And I say, how do you know that, though? And she says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll get a girlfriend of mine to try and seduce him, and then we'll know. Please don't do that. Please, please don't do that. Please. All right? That's, that's really not a good idea. And so uh, um, these are um, spiritual things. And you have to be able to know, because only another spiritual being can perceive at some level whether a person has these spiritual qualities. 
but the HR department cannot administer any tests that will prove it. An example of a spiritual characteristic that is, is very damaging and destructive, and I'm sure it's something you've seen in your own work experience. Do you know how absolutely toxic it is to have somebody – uh, a colleague or an associate that you have to work with who just radiates a black cloud of gloominess and unhappiness. You find yourself starting to have to walk on eggshells for fear of setting this person off. And you, you realize that, you know, people talk about uh, pollution and how terrible pollution is. You know something? I would rather work in a room filled with tobacco smoke than have to work in a room that is also occupied by a person who just radiates misery and unhappiness and resentment and envy. That's real pollution. Give me tobacco smoke any time. I'd rather have it. Uh, but the pollution that is spiritual is incredibly damaging. And again, very hard to come up with a test that will let you know in advance uh, that somebody does that because everybody can put on a good show for an interview. But what happens afterwards and this tendency, and again, spiritual problem, right? I've covered this in the past, that being happy is a spiritual quality. But it's not a genetic thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not biological. Uh, everybody has reasons to be unhappy and miserable. And those of us who are able to exert a, um, a, a happy radiation are a pleasure to live with. I mean, if you are married, what right do you have to subject your spouse or maybe your children to your black moods? This is a spiritual failing. That's all it is. We're not, we shouldn't do it. And again, we, we live in a time where for um, uh, more than 100 years, I mean, since late 19th century, uh, between uh, Marx and Darwin, and then a few years later, Freud, uh, you know, 1880, um, these three guys really... Uh, had enormous impact on the world in terms of making, of persuading people that we are really just organisms that react to our environment. And so, uh, you know, somebody is just miserable to live with. He, he's, he's on a short fuse and he's always angry and he's always miserable and unhappy and just sends out this, this gloom. And, but, hey, you know, I can't help it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's how I, it's my makeup. I can't help it. Yeah, you can actually. <laughs> you really can. And uh, that's one of the reasons that um, economic vitality has always been linked to uh, the presence of a biblical outlook. And again, uh, obviously there are people who disagree with that statement, but uh, they are wrong. And the truth is that, in fact, uh, atheistic regimes, regimes that reject a biblical worldview, have never succeeded in generating vibrant economies. Never happened. But um, uh, countries, societies that are biblically centric um, the United States of America, obviously, most powerfully, Israel, uh, Western Europe in, the, uh, uh, in earlier times. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons is this idea that you can control your thoughts, right? 
Um, my, my mother never let me say things like, uh, well, it's how I feel. I can't help it. We'll change it. And uh, when I was old enough, my parents explained that that's the reason for the 10th commandment. Right? What's commandment number eight? Come on. I bet you know it. Come on. No, you probably don't. Commandment number eight is no stealing. Okay, so I know I mustn't steal. Uh, what do we need commandment 10 for, which is you mustn't want things that belong to other people? Who does that possibly hurt? Big deal. You know, so somebody's got something and uh, I really want it. But I'm going to follow commandment number eight. I'm never going to help myself to it. I'm never going to take it or steal it. So what do you care, God? Why are you telling me that I'm not allowed to desire it or covet it or want it? Because... You have to learn to control your feelings. And you're right. Desiring somebody else's property does not hurt them. They may not even be aware of it, but it hurts you. It does spiritual damage to you to want things that other people own. You know, if there's something you want to buy and you save up your money and you want to go get it, you know, God bless you. Good luck to you. But uh, it's specifically something that belongs to somebody else. Uh, desiring it is a bad thing for you. And the 10th commandment is there to teach us that we can control our feelings. This is a hugely important principle and uh, one that is very valuable in terms of financial growth. And, um, and it's one of the reasons that cultures that were knowledgeable about the Ten Commandments <clears throat> and reverent towards the Ten Commandments uh, always did well, did better financially than those that weren't. If you think about it, you'll see uh, how even in your own life, the ability, the knowledge that you can control your feelings, immensely powerful, very, very valuable. So that's part of a spiritual getting to know yourself. Another one is to realize that your ability to communicate is spiritual, not physical. So, again, just to clarify, by means of your tongue and your mouth and your lips and your vocal cords, you can certainly vibrate air molecules. There's no question about it. You can make all kinds of noises, and that is physical. But the articulating of those noises into intelligible slices, each of which is a word or a letter or a sentence or a paragraph, and to be able to convey meaning, now that is not physical, that is spiritual. And, you know, they sometimes say, oh, well, he's got the gift of the gab when they speak about somebody who's a very good professional uh, salesperson. Well, that is a spiritual attribute. And, uh, and so much so, by the way, that in, um, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, what it speaks of there is God breathing a spirit of life into man. And ancient Jewish wisdom translates that as giving him the ability to speak. And that's why I know that Coco the gorilla never did speak and never will speak. And that no animal will ever communicate um, or, you know, you will never find animals getting together to hold a conference about human behavior. It's not going to happen. Uh, the ability to speak is from the soul, not just the body, and uh, it is something incredibly valuable and really, really important um, in the area of building one's fortune. To explore a little bit further uh, this idea 
that human beings are both body and soul, that we are both physical and spiritual in nature, and that for the purposes of developing business, for the purposes of expanding our financial destiny, uh, the more valuable attributes are spiritual, not physical. Uh, one of the ways of understanding that is to take a look at identical twins. Now, identical twins have identical DNA, right? Um, that's, that's pretty clear. And uh, what we find is that um, in identical twins, they actually look the same. There'll always be two little boys or two little girls, and, and you know, you can't tell them apart. But here's a question. Do identical twins have the same fingerprints or different fingerprints? What do you think? And you might have an instinctive response and go one way, but let's explore that for a moment. Let's assume for the moment that identical twins have um, different fingerprints. Where would that come from? So you've got a problem. They both are made up of the identical DNA. That means there is zero genetic information to make anything different between the two of them. And so it's all very well to say, oh, they must have different fingerprints, but how on earth does that happen? How could they possibly have different fingerprints? And if they have the same fingerprints, well, that would then suggest that uh, identical twins really are completely identical in every possible way. What is the truth? The truth is identical twins have different fingerprints. But how can that be? Where on earth can the information come from to give them uh, different fingerprints? Well, uh, I'll jump in here quickly and save the time of those of you who have a biological uh, biology background because what you're probably going to say, oh, it's epigenetics. And I have to tell you that epigenetics is uh, a field that ranges from unproven to quackery. Epigenetics, basically, and it's very interesting, but it's an interesting field, and I think there's something to it. But the notion that epigenetics can explain fingerprint differences in identical twins, that is total quackery. Um, epigenetics says that, um, that there are sort of tags on DNA that uh, can activate, you know, the 22,000 genes in every cell, and they don't all have to be active in the same way all the time. And so there's sort of switches somewhere. And none of this is like we, we you know, you can't look down and see these things. So we're, we're postulating their existence. And uh, the, some of the implications are very, very interesting, meaning that the behavior of a mother and a, a, a man and a woman before they conceive a child could well impact um, the outcome of that child, certain aspects in the life of that child. But one thing it does not explain is separate fingerprints. And, uh, and so what is the explanation? Well, the explanation is that creativity is a specifically human and spiritual characteristic. And it's not, you know, animals do not convert forests into factories. Uh, human beings create things. And uh, that creativity is um, exemplified by the fingertips. You know, as we use our fingers to create. In other words, you'll even find expressions in poetry of the, you know, the work of his hands, even though the person may not work with his hands. But the idea is our hands uh, signify our ability to make and create. And uh, and so for God to have put 
our mark of uniqueness, namely that fingerprint on the fingers as opposed to on the elbow or the knees, makes perfect sense because that way you can think of it more as a soul print than a fingerprint because that's really exactly what it is. And so what uh, we have to understand um, is that our uniqueness is our spirituality. Uh, it, that is really what makes us separate from one another. Um, you, know, you know, even fingerprints turn out, well, not really to be biological and physical. They are also spiritual in nature uh, because there is no physical or biological information that can give identical twins separate fingerprints. But um, another aspect of our spiritual makeup is our imagination, our capacity to imagine. Now, think about it. Um, it's only through imagining that we're able to build and do and create. If somebody writes a poem or writes a novel or creates a beautiful song and music, these are acts of imaginative power, which, again, is pure spiritual. Somebody comes up with a new app to build, a new piece of software. Somebody comes up with a business idea. Back in 1970, a guy came up with the idea of putting wheels on luggage. You know, up till then, most travel was still by train. And uh, you got off the train. You were already in the middle of the city. And, uh, you, you, you know, you go up the escalator, and there you are. But all of a sudden, air travel is becoming popular in uh, the late 60s and early 70s. The Boeing 707 was already flying. Uh, the jet age had begun. And uh, there in 1970, wow, a very interesting thing. A guy said the one obstacle, as, as we see people walking through long airport hallways carrying suitcases, we need wheels. And think about it. That was when wheels were placed on suitcases. It was sheer imagination. And um, and it didn't go easy. I mean, he had a hard time selling the concept. Macy's was the first store that agreed to buy some of his wheeled suitcases. And, of course, since then, um, you know, there's no looking back. But a simple act like that today, you can't even imagine. Why would anybody have a suitcase without wheels? That's all we used to have prior to 1970. These are acts of imagination. And, um, you know, I want to tell you something you're not going to want to hear, but um, your imagination can be thought of as a muscle, and you really need it. For success in business, you absolutely need your imagination functioning at full speed. And uh, you're not going to want to hear this, but watching pictures corrodes the imagination. Reading words stimulates and generates the imagination. I mean, we all know how absolutely compelling is television, moving pictures. They are almost irresistible. Watching a movie, watching something on your iPad, watching it on your tablet or your iPhone or your computer, watching it on the television screen. Now, uh, like many people, Susan and I decided when we got married to not have a television in our home. And we've, we've really kept that uh, commitment. We've never had a TV. When we travel, uh, we we see you know we see the television and I must admit when I travel by myself I sometimes turn it on and then I have to really force myself to turn it off. It is very very seductive. Uh, it's 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 drug it's drug like. Moving pictures are drug like, uh, but it destroys the imagination.
There's no question about it. And, uh, and so if you have a choice to devote some of your time between reading and watching, the, the time spent watching is wasted. You can really believe me on that. Uh, well, I learned so many things from watching YouTube. Yeah, in the three hours you sat watching one after another, uh, you know, in half that time with a book, you would have been a changed person. Watching pictures does not change us. Reading books does. So anyway, I know that's not popular things. People don't want to hear that. But uh, just give yourself a 30-day test. Uh, no moving pictures for 30 days. A lot of reading. And then write and tell me how things have changed for you. And your letter will join hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands now, of other letters from people uh, who felt that their lives were dramatically changed by simply cutting down dramatically on how much watching they do and increasing the number the amount of reading they do so it's really it's really something very very worthwhile knowing and understanding and and practicing please uh, yeah imagination is spiritual and um, another thing that's spiritual is optimism i've spoken about that before um you you might be interested in a test that MetLife Insurance did back in the 80s. They, with the help of, I think it was a Dr. Seligman is the name I sort of remember, uh, and I think working with MIT in Boston, they came up with what they thought was a reasonable test for optimism. And what they discovered was that uh, churning through um, new hires was very expensive because, like many companies, they spend a lot of money on training and teaching. And when people leave, uh, that's money that's wasted. And they, they were trying to see, you know, do they have most success with people with degrees, academic degrees? Do they have most uh, success with people who score high on IQ tests? Do they have most success with people who are socially gregarious? Uh, turned out that the one single most important characteristic was optimism. And they attribute one of the reasons that MetLife leapt ahead and did so well during the 80s and early 90s was precisely because they began hiring strictly for optimism. And, I mean, you know, you know what it's like in your own life. Sometimes, you, you know, you start, you get up at the beginning of the day, and you're feeling down, and you're worried about things that are coming up ahead, and you're just not feeling that things are going to go well. Imagine there was an optimism tablet you could take then. You know, wouldn't you do it? Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, there are things that can impact that optimism factor and uh, and and be tremendously destructive. Uh, alcohol is one of them; makes you feel optimistic. Um, drugs, obviously, there are drugs, and one of the things that make certain drugs so incredibly appealing is they make you feel optimistic. So. I really understand it. I mean, uh, you know, God forbid nobody should show me a drug for optimism. I'd, I'd find it almost irresistible. But accepting, I know a better way. Oh, and also, by the way, um, sex is also a, a drug for optimism. And it's one of the reasons why uh, marriage is such a powerful tool for wealth creation. Again, it's something I've spoken about in, in previous shows and something I'm sure many of you have heard me say. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. There's no question about it. 
that a man who has had a, a satisfying and fulfilling few moments of privacy with his wife goes off to work with a bounce in his step. It's a different kind of a thing. And, um, and it, 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 that works. It, it really, really, really is. And unlike drugs or alcohol, it has no downside at all. Uh, but what else? Is there something else as well? Yes, because you cannot always um, uh, derive the effects of that form of optimism generation. You're not always in a position to do that. But is there a way to generate your optimism that always works regardless of circumstance? And the answer is absolutely yes. How do you generate optimism? Uh, the optimism tablet is gratitude. It's absolutely incredible. And um, you, 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 you've got to know that this is something you're not doing enough of, absolutely not doing enough of. Um, what you need to do is make sure that you thank people during the course of your day. I know this sounds counterintuitive. You're probably going to say, to you, oh, come on, Lappin, what are you talking about? What is optimism and gratitude? What do they have to do with one another? The answer is they have an enormous amount to do with one another. And um, expressing, by the way, it's not just enough to think gratitude. You actually have to express it. And so find opportunities to say to people in your home life, your family life, your social life, your work life, find a way of saying to people, I just want you to know I really appreciate your hard work. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate all you do for me. I appreciate watching how much you're doing for that person you're helping. Um, expressing gratitude is incredibly valuable, so much so that I would strongly recommend. Uh, you know how I encourage people to carry um, a, about 23 by 5 index cards with them always held together by a rubber band? By the way, you know, every now and then people test me on this. Um, people run into me or people recognize me at an airport uh, from television, from these specifically, these ancient Jewish wisdom TV shows that you can now download yourself. Uh, well, <coughs> um, people sometimes say, oh, by the way, you know, you, I've heard you talk about having a pile of three by five index cards. Do you really have that? Boy, I just whip them out of my pocket and here they are bound together with a yellow rubber band. Here are my three by five index cards. Well, uh, use one every morning for writing down five things you're grateful for. It does change your day. Um, I'm not going to take the time now to give you the reasoning behind it and how that works and why it works. Let's not take the time on that. Just for the moment, uh, take it from me, but, uh, but then try it. And, you know, you know that I wouldn't like to run into you and have you said, you know, oh, by the way, you really are full of it. You know what that stuff about, I thank people and I was up and it made no difference at all. Uh, I wouldn't like that to happen. So uh, you can be sure I wouldn't say this if it were not true and effective. Uh, it really is true. It really is effective. It simply works. And it's a, it's a fantastic way. It does generate optimism and really does change your day try it for 30 days you'll never go back to the old you promise you 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 really won't want to do it well i've told you how to go about improving your optimism that's a hugely important tool for the increasing your uh, financial abundance for making you a more effective business professional 
And you know how I emphasize in, in all my teaching, I'm thinking particularly of uh, the book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. Uh, there's a whole section there where I teach you to view yourself as never being an employee, but always being a business professional. And one of the other tools of being a business professional is the uh, gift of the gab, isn't it? It's the ability to convey an idea with words. Because every time you want to do a deal with somebody, every time you want to buy something, every time you want to sell something, every time you want to create a partnership or a collaboration, it means that you have to excite the imagination of the other person by means of your ability to express ideas in words. And I would like to give you now, as I gave you a tool for developing optimism, another useful tool, I want to give you the mechanism for increasing uh, your fluency. Now, uh, this is very important. It used to be back in, uh, in the 1950s, the average American high school child left high school with a vocabulary of around 35,000 words. Um, it started going down. It's now about half of that. Right now, on average in the United States, children leave high school uh, with a working voc vocabulary of between fifteen and 17,000 words. Uh, it's way down. Uh, it is possible that this is a contributing act, uh, factor to violence. In other words, for a human being created by God with the ability to communicate, for a human being to be stifled in his desperate desire to connect with another human being verbally, uh, that it perhaps allows a more rapid recourse to violence, perhaps, I don't know. But uh, I do know that it is a huge problem. And uh, I don't know any easy way to measure or check what your vocabulary is. But whatever it is, you need to not only improve that, but you need to improve your ability to string words together and make sentences into paragraphs. And uh, at the end of the day, convey an idea in a persuasive and compelling fashion. That's really what you have to do. Um, what can I tell you about that? Very simply, read aloud. Right, I, I can embroider this. I can I can pretty it up. I can take a long time to tell you this, but uh, you're either going to do it or you're not. Okay, there's that's all there is to it. And uh, if you're not, there's nothing I can say to change your mind. If you are going to do it, you don't need a lot of massaging with warm butter. That's right, you got it. So uh, I may as well just tell it. You're right. You need to read aloud. Your own ears must hear your own mouth articulate the words for at least 20 minutes three times a week. Uh, ideally, make it for half an hour. Go with 30 minutes. What should you read? Uh, something good, right? Not a TV guide, uh, not People magazine. You need to read something that sounds the way you wish you sounded. Okay, so, you know, spend a little while at your public library. You know, you can borrow books for free. Did you know that? This is an incredible invention, this thing called a library. You can actually borrow books for free, and I bet there is one not very far from where you are right now. So uh, uh, find a book that is written by somebody who sounds the way you wish you sounded, and then read aloud. Now, uh, if you have a, a spouse, 
they may be happy in the evening for you to read aloud to them. Uh, mine, I'm lucky, mine li likes me to read to her, but she goes to sleep, which sort of worries me a little bit, makes me think that uh, uh, I'm a little soporific here, and uh, I tend to put people to sleep. Well, I hope that's not the case. I hope so. But um, the important thing is, though, that she lets me read aloud, which is good for me, and if it puts her to sleep, well, so be it. But uh, but that way I'm able to get in my hour a week of reading aloud, and the difference is absolutely incredible. Uh, do it, and you will join, again, huge numbers of people over the years that uh, I have coached in these areas and who have responded to me about just how very effective this um, this this strategy is for improving people's um, uh, ability to communicate, to articulate. You'll love it. You really will love the new you on this. And people will comment about it as well. People will, will notice that you sound different. So, um, look, uh, a lot of things we've been talking about are things that just make you better people. And this is one of the great things. You know, you can be a horrible human being and write uh, fantastic music like uh, Richard Wagner. Uh, you can be a horrible human being and be a great tennis player. You can be a horrible human being and uh, and be a poet. You can be a horrible human being and and be a uh, a, a proficient physician. These are all true, but you cannot be a horrible human being and be a successful business professional. Yeah, yeah, look, of course, you and I, we all know the occasional person who's a real louse, a real horror, a misery, who is successful, who's done well in business. Yeah, there are exceptions that prove the rule, obviously, but they are few in number. The overwhelming majority of people who do well in business are decent, good people who do the right thing. And that's what's great about business. You basically diminish your odds of success if you're a horrible person. Um, if you're a dishonest person, if you're a, a, a pessimistic person, all of these things tend to reduce your likelihood of success in business. So uh, that's a, it's, a, it's a really nice thing to know that you are trying to make yourself more successful in a field, making money. You are trying to make yourself more successful uh, while at the same time, what you are doing is also making you a better human being. And it, it's really wonderful. I mean, you just think about it, right? Don't most of us prefer to do business with people that we know, people we like, people we trust? That's why when people move to a new town, they talk to friends they like and they say, could you recommend a doctor? Can you recommend a good car mechanic? Uh, can you recommend a book? Whatever you need. People are looking for recommendations. They want to... You, you know, just out of the phone book, anyone in business will tell you the very best customer is the person who comes to you by personal referral. That's how it works. And so being a good person, being a decent person, being an upright person uh, is good for business in a way it's not necessarily good for being a racing car driver, not necessarily being good for being a, uh, uh, you know, whatever it else you want to be. But uh, it is uh, just an amazing connection between business and decency, not found in other areas at all. Uh, now, people might not realize the importance of these skills we're discussing. Uh, sometimes a person becomes a plumber and says, well, now I'm in good shape. I'll, you know, I'll never be hungry again. 
look, um, there are doctors and lawyers and plumbers who go hungry because they don't have customers or clients. Customers or clients select a, uh, a professional, whether it's somebody to paint your house or repair your car or fix your pipes. You pick that person on the basis of your feelings about that person, the feelings they engender in you. It's always like that. Very few of us pick a doctor because he came first in his class at medical school because you don't know where he came in medical school. You probably don't even know what medical school your doctor went to. And if you're absolutely honest, you will nod your head and agree with me when I tell you you probably don't even actually know that your doctor went to medical school at all. And you say, well, I saw a diploma on his wall. Eh, you know what? Give me a printer and a computer. I'll make you as many diplomas as you want. And you know that as well as I do. You don't rely on that. You rely on his reputation. And reputation is a key part of doing business. It's a key part of be doing the right thing and being a decent professional, a decent human being, a decent business person. And, uh, and that's really exactly what we've been talking about, right? And uh, here's one of the really important things about the way doing business right, being an effective and successful business professional. And again, I just want to stress everything I'm saying is regardless of whether you are an entrepreneur or whether you're an employee, it makes no difference. Because one of the things I teach is how as an employee, you have to totally adjust your attitude to start seeing yourself in business. And so I don't care whether you work for uh, a huge company or whether you pour coffee for, uh, for a coffee shop, whatever you do, the correct way to view yourself that will dramatically increase your success is to realize you're actually in business for yourself. See, a lot of people make a terrible mistake. They think the most important thing to do is get a job. Oh, I got a job. Great. I'm hired. Oh, terrific. And they, they heave a sigh of relief and they sort of go into relaxed mode now. Oh, I had, this was a tough two months. I was without work, but now I've got a job. And you think to yourself, now it's my employer's responsibility to tell me what to do. It's my res employer's responsibility to give me my, my salary and my money and my pay. It's my employer's responsibility to give me my medical care. It's my employer's responsibility to see that I leave work on time. Oh, it's great. And you're never going to succeed. All of those things are your responsibility. If your employer hasn't told you what to do, find the things that need doing. Think of yourself as being in business for yourself. It changes everything and leads to your success. And it also makes it possible for you to understand what I'm about to tell you now, which is that uh, when you focus on all of these aspects and you feel yourself becoming a better person, a more upright person, a more decent person, you start thinking better of yourself. And uh, a lot of the time when we allow ourselves to become filled subconsciously with a sense of self-loathing, we're deep in your heart, sometimes deeper than you're even aware of. You just feel you're a rotten human being. You start feeling bad about yourself. Well, there's a very important uh, verse in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. This is where the spies come back from Israel and they report back to Moses what they saw. And there's a 
crucial sentence there where they say, um, and we thought of ourselves as nothing but grasshoppers. They were saying how intimidating and, and frightening and big and powerful the inhabitants of the land are. We'll never be able to conquer this land and take it away from them and make it our land. Never, never, never going to happen. We, we felt like grasshoppers. And then the verse ends with this critical phrase, and that's what we looked like to them too. Isn't that interesting? They never spoke to the people. How do you know what you looked like to them? And ancient Jewish wisdom tells the truth, and I'm sure you've divined it already yourself, which is that when you think that you are nothing but a grasshopper, that's what you're going to look like to other people as well. And if you allow the very natural human instinct of self-loathing to permeate your being, well, other people are going to sense that as well. They may not be able to put a finger on it. They may not be able to even say to anybody what it was about you, but there's going to be something about you that disturbs them. And so to begin to start seeing yourself as a good person, a decent person, an upright person, enormous value in this because as you see these, and you can't fool yourself, you know that, right? Uh, but when you start seeing that you are a good person, that you are working not just to grab money, of course not. You're working because you take genuine pleasure in serving your customers. You take real delight in serving your clients. You take real delight in doing your job. That makes you a good person. It improves you as a human being. These are very valuable things because that's how you then come across to others as well. I'm not talking about complacency or smugness. I'm not saying that you've got to somehow put on a facade of, self, of obsequiousness and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and self-righteousness. No, heaven forbid, not at all. But when people have a low moral opinion of themselves, uh, if, if people feel self-indulgent and unworthy, that communicates itself to other people in a very subtle and, and often incomprehensible way. And it just doesn't feel good. And on the contrary, when you are uh, filled with a sense of self-respect and you have a feeling about yourself that, you know what, you're a good man, you're a good woman, you're doing the things you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do them, you are pleasing other human beings. That's the bottom line, right? You realize you are pleasing other human beings, um, you know, people who are not forced at the point of a gun to interact with you. People are interacting with you because they choose to do so because you're improving their lives by your involvement in their lives. Uh, that makes you feel good about yourself. I'm not talking about the, uh, the scourge of self-esteem. No, not at all. Self-respect, yes, not self-esteem. And, uh, and, and that is something that does communicate itself to other people as well, which is wonderful. Well, I, I hope that uh, some of this has been useful to you. Really, it all should have been very useful to you. And uh, it's uh, at least it's a small bite of everything I teach in the material, in the books, in, the, in my coaching programs, um, in the audio programs available at the website. But uh, for now, at least, I think that in the last few minutes that we've spent together, I have successfully conveyed to you some very specific spiritual uh, 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 strategies that can dramatically impact your financial abundance. You know, not this week. There's no, there's no quick uh, get-rich schemes that, that work. No, no, no. This is talking about 
changing your um, uh, your destiny, your financial destiny, impacting your revenue, dramatically raising your revenue. You know, I'm recording this in the month of, of July as it happens. And uh, that means you've, if you are listening to this on, you know, uh, soon after its release, then that means you've got half a year. Yeah. You apply these strategies for the, for the remainder of this year, you will without question, I'm confident of it, have a better year than you would have otherwise have had. You probably will have a better year than you had last year. These are things you have to apply. So in other words, what you've probably understood so far is that uh, succeeding with the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom is not uh, as much sort of doing specific things and pressing the right buttons it's it's sort of becoming the right person if you know what i mean it's literally changing who you are not just what you do uh, changing who you are is sometimes accomplished by changing what you do but the goal is to become a superior human being and that then results in superior cash flow it, it really does and that is part of how the good lord created this world in which we live and why it is that money plays such an important role throughout the five books of moses uh, that's about as far as i i think we can go please make sure to go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and order yourself uh, buy a download of one of the ancient Jewish wisdom television products. You can download it in high de definition or in regular definition. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not a very long download, especially if you have a half-decent Wi-Fi connection. Um, download it, and you will have not one, not two, not three, but four half-hour ancient Jewish wisdom television shows hosted by my wife Susan Lappin and me, in which we try and bring you exactly the kind of thing we've just been doing for the last uh, little while, things of real value, spiritual insights that dramatically change your world, ancient solutions for modern problems. So look for the ancient Jewish wisdom uh, television series on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and, uh, and go for it. Give it a try and let me know, would you? At the, at the website, not only can you order the download of the Ancient Jewish Wisdom television show, you can also write and send a message uh, letting me know your reaction. I really would be interested. Okay, uh, remember, by the way, these TV shows, don't watch them alone. I mean, you can, but you want to get the real benefit. Watch it with somebody with whom your relationship is important. You know what I mean? Um, somebody you're close to, somebody you want to be close to, somebody you want to go closer to, maybe children, maybe whoever it is. Listen, watch these shows together because the spiritual communion that comes from exploring spiritual realities together with somebody else uh, is really very, it's almost palpable. It's, it is palpable. You will experience it as well. So uh, make sure you watch these TV shows with somebody else whose relationship with you is important. That's it, my friends. With great reluctance, I have to tear myself away and wish you a week of great times with your family, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.
spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapid On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 